Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. We're in James chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, would you flip there? We're going to be in verse 14. This is the most controversial and difficult passage in this book, one of the most controversial and difficult ones in all of the New Testament. So we're going to be diving in there today. And what we're going to see is that if you you live with authentic, authentic faith, you're Faith will be alive, it will be awake, and it will be active, and it will make a difference in your life. And so we're going to lean in there today, and we're just going to jump right in because we've got a lot to cover. And I hope you guys got your thinking caps on. Students that stayed up all night, you're in trouble. But uh, we're going to just trust the Lord to that and be okay. So James chapter 2 and verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one says to him, to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have your faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person... Is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. And it's a tough one. Uh, it's one that uh, James comes straight at us. And just to kind of review and tell you where we've been in this book of James, James is... And he's an action-oriented guy. He's a guy that likes to, 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 to be kind of aggressive. He's, he, he's kind of, you know, theory's okay, but if we could get to the practice really quickly, he'd be better off. Uh, I kind of said that the book of James is like an action film. It's just gonna come at you and keep coming and it's gonna keep moving and it's not gonna slow down. Um, James, uh, in chapter one, if you remember, told us that we're to be doers of the word, not just hearers. So we're not just people that sit back and listen to the word, but we're to be people who are aggressively, actively living it out and doing it. In this passage, James is gonna kind of keep on that same thread. In some ways, he's gonna say, we're not just speakers of the word, we're to do the word. We're not just those who can recite back some things out of the word, we're to be those that are active about it. See, there's a danger of kind of understanding religious jargon. There's a danger of cultural, what we call sometimes call cultural Christianity, where you're just in, you're inundated with a culture that sort of knows some quotes from the Bible that maybe you see some, some big buildings in different parts of our country and they've got Bible verses etched in them so everyone knows these things. The truth will set you right. And so, you know, you can go almost anywhere in the world, you can quote that and they could finish the blank. But that may not really know that they know the truth and it may not really mean that they've been set free. 
It's just they've been around it so much, they know how to recite and regurgitate some of the lines that are there. And so there's a danger in that. There's a danger in mentally kind of assenting or agreeing with some of these things or, 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 or capt- being, able to, being able to describe some of these things, but not maybe having your heart captured by these things. And James is gonna push on those ideas. In fact, in chapter one, we saw that he said, if you receive meekly the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, that it will do work in you and begin to change your life. And so there's something about receiving the gospel truth that's meant to produce something good in us. So the kind of the classic question you hear on the street is something like this. Well, if I'm saved by grace alone, then why would I not just keep on sinning and show off more grace? Like surely if I'm saved just by faith alone, then it doesn't matter what I do on the backside of that because I've already proclaimed my faith. If I proclaim my faith, then I I should be able to live however I want to without any consequences. Those are the kinds of questions you get. It was interesting. My son was in a discussion this week with some of his classmates and he actually texted me and said, hey dad, what are the passages we know about this? And he asked me that exact question. I sent back and I was like, well, oddly enough, we're talking about that this week in church. So come to church. Um, And he did make it, which is good. So here's what we're gonna do. Uh, James is gonna push back and he's gonna actually form an argument against this idea. And so in James 2, in these verses, he's gonna actually argue against that idea. And he's gonna just go through this really logical argument. And so you're gonna have to lean in a little bit because we're just gonna unpack this argument. What you see is he starts off with two questions. These two questions really set up kind of the theme of what he's gonna talk about. Then he's gonna give us a case study and say, let me, let me give you a case study and show you kind of how this works in real life. Then in verse 18, 19, he's gonna really challenge us with some kind of hard truth. Then after that, he's gonna give us two examples in kind of a summary illustration. So if I'm breaking him down as a preacher, that's kind of where we're going, okay? So we're gonna jump in here and look at the way he unpacks this argument. Notice in verse 14, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? Now, I think if you could see James there, he'd have put it in, he'd put said and says in quotes. Like, what good is it if someone says he has faith? And it could be translated claims. And there's kind of an assumption built into the, the way he says this that just says, you know, if someone claims this thing, but I'm really doubting that it's very authentic. I'm doubting that it's true. So James is already kind of assuming that this person's claim is dubious. If your claim to faith means that it makes no difference in your life, then you know, what good really is your faith, right? See, I think whenever I interact with people outside of the church and I, and I talk with them about Christianity, I talk with them about Christ, one of the things that I hear back from people oftentimes is, man, I hear what you're saying, but I just don't think it really works. Like, I'm not sure faith works the way you say it's, it, it, it does because I know Christians. I know, <clears throat> I know what, what, what the church looks like. I know what the reports on the news of the church look like. And I think they know that something's wrong, that something somehow veered off course, but they're not sure what to do about that. And so I think that's what James is starting out here. He's saying, look, if someone has these religious claims, but it doesn't do anything, then what good is it really in the grand scheme? And he's gonna say, it's really not, not much. It's pretty useless. So verses 15 and 16, he's gonna say, let me give you a case study and kind of tell you what I'm talking about, right? So what's the case study he gives? You've got someone who's naked, meaning that they're poorly clothed. It may mean that they just, they're inappropriately clothed. And so it's a cold day, rainy day, and they don't have anything to keep them dry. They don't have anything to keep them warm. So they're exposed to the elements and they're hungry. They have nothing to eat. And so someone who's naked and who's, who's, uh, who's hungry comes to, to uh, someone who's a professor in Christ or someone who claims to be a Christian and tells them of their need. And what does this person do that makes such a difference in their life? 
It says, go in peace, be warm, be filled. And isn't that just sweet? You know, if you were in the, if you were in the South, it'd be some, you know, they'd, they'd throw something else on that, like, sweetheart. Like, go, be warm, be filled, sweetheart. You know, like, you'd, you'd say something really kind of demeaning like that. And here's the thing. These are statements are not bad, right? In fact, what you understand, if you, if you were if from that day, you'd understand that go in peace is actually, it's a formal greeting. It's actually a blessing. It's, it's something that, that the religious people that day would have said to their brothers and sisters in the faith. They would have said, go in peace, my brother, my sister. It's meant to be this kind of well-wishing statement, this blessing upon them. Be warmed and be filled is meant to be kind of a prayer. Like, I wanna pray for you that you'll be warmed and be filled. And so in some ways, the statement's not problematic, right? But James has a big problem with it. Why, why does James have such a problem with this statement? Well, because it's empty, that they didn't really mean it. It's like telling someone, say, hey, I'll pray for you, and then you never think about them again. Uh, anyone ever done that? Yeah, that can step on some toes, right? Because it's easy when someone posts something on Facebook and says, I'm going through this hard time, and you go, oh, sorry, praying for you. And you may not really ever do that. It's just a religious platitude. It's just something that you say. It's this thing that you, by reflex, you say, oh, I know the right religious response right now is I'm supposed to say this thing, but really my heart's not in it. And really my, my heart isn't poured out to you and I'm not really running to you and love for you and I'm not really doing anything about your problem. And James though is going back to an idea that Jesus really talked about. You go back to Matthew 25, Jesus had this idea too and he talks about the sheep and the goats and how there's this one group of people that whenever they, he says, you know, you love me and you're welcome to come with me into my kingdom. He says, come, you who are blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. And he goes on. So Jesus talks about this exact same idea. James is highlighting that. But in this scenario, rather than clothing them, as Jesus encouraged us to do, they offered this kind of religious platitude. And do you see the danger that he's, that he's pointing out? This religious statement, this blessing, this kind of facade of, religiosity, that I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the right things, say the right things, understand the right things, be able to quote the right things, but my, I, I, it's somehow separated from a real love for people, from real action, from actually doing anything about the problem. The problem's not with their statement. The statement was good. The problem was that their words were empty. See, oftentimes we're talking about orthodox people. We're talking about people that, these are religious people that they know the right things to do. They're just not acting on their faith. They're non-Christians with a facade of faith. See, if your faith really amounts to the ability just to recite some lines you heard in Sunday school, that it ever really penetrated your heart and did some renovation work there and relaunched you on a new path, and maybe, maybe it's not real. If, if your faith amounts to the ability to recite a creed or recite the lines that you were taught in a catechism class or recite something that those things aren't necessarily bad. But if they stay right here and it's just an intellectual thing that you can somehow regurgitate the lines um, four score many years ago, right? That's not in the Bible. You know that, right? Like, but, but, if it's just, but if you look at the things in the Bible and it's just like reciting the Gettysburg Address and to you, these are just intellectual cultural things that you're supposed to know and be able to recite on cue, and somehow your faith just tells you like, here's the cue, you spit out a religious thing, but it hasn't really captured your heart and doesn't really change the way you live. What James is saying is that faith is useless because it didn't really amount to much. Let me ask you this, the little thing they said to the person who was naked and hungry, how much did that help them? 
they were still naked. They were still hungry. So to their point, they're like, man, I appreciate that, but hey, how about some food? Like, how about we go to lunch, right? Because it was pretty useless as far as they were concerned. And so what we see with James is he takes this just kind of earthy, practical example of this person who is naked and hungry and says, man, that didn't help that person. So that faith was ineffective at actually making a difference in this person's life. And then he's gonna go and say, okay, beyond that just kind of practical need and how, how that works, that case study, let's dig in and see how that faith actually makes a difference in the lives of others or the lives or in your own life to save you. Verse 17, he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, by your, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead. He actually says this, uh, this or something like it three different times in this passage. In verse 20, he says, faith without works is useless. Verse 26 he, or 24, he goes back to faith without works is dead. And this dude's not subtle, is he? Like he's, he doesn't really hold back. He's just coming at us and saying, you need to understand there's a problem with this kind of faith, that it doesn't amount to anything, that it's really, it's, it's useless. In verses 18, 19, he's gonna give us a challenge. So he's kind of teed up this conversation. Now he's gonna give us this kind of difficult challenge and he's <clears throat> gonna talk about what it is that we, uh, and so he sets up this kind of imaginary argument. And so if you think about him in terms of just the, the logic of his argument, he comes up with this, and uses kind of the tool that a lot of people, speakers did in that day, called the diatribe, where he's gonna create this kind of imaginary or fictitious opponent, and he's gonna have a dialogue or conversation with him. And so he's gonna say, someone says, and then he's gonna say, you foolish person. And he's saying, this guy that's arguing with me about what I'm trying to help you understand, and he's doing that to kind of play devil's advocate and help you understand what he wants you to understand. But you notice in verse 18, he says twice, show me your faith and I will show you my faith. And that's gonna become, we're gonna get back to this, but this idea of showing someone your faith meaning that it's visible, meaning that it's exposed, meaning that it's, it's demonstrating to a watching world what is really on the inside is, is gonna be significant for our interpreting and understanding this passage. But first, he's gonna really challenge us with an idea. Verse 19, he says what? You believe that God is one, you do well. Now, if you were a Jewish Christian from that time and you hear that God is one, then you're gonna immediately go back to the Old Testament. And actually, one of the most famous and most oft-quoted lines in the Old Testament is a, is a verse called the Shema. And it was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And so they would, they would recite this all the time. And so everyone in that culture would have known that. Everyone that he's writing to, the Jews scattered in the, in the, uh, throughout those, the, those regions, they, they would have heard this their whole lives and they would have known that. And so he says, you believe that, uh, you believe that God is one, you do well. Meaning, way to go. Like, you got the line that you quote every Sunday right. You know, it's like the guy that comes to Sunday school and you're not sure what the answer is. So you just say Jesus because you figure like that you can't be wrong. Somehow that's got to steer you in the right direction. Uh, but, you know, it's just, there, there's, a, there's a situation where he's saying, look, you, you do well to say, that, uh, to say that the Lord your God is one. You're quoting the right line, that's good. But then he gets it a step further. He says, but even the demons believe Man, does that just push you in a little bit different direction? Even the demons believe. Like you believe, you believe that line's true? Way to go. Even the demons believe that. And so he's saying to them, man, there's, 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 there's a sense in which you can understand something intellectually, but unless you embrace it with your life by faith, then it's not real faith. 
It's just mental assent. It's mentally agreeing with the facts of something. It's mentally tipping your hat in a direction and saying, this is right. How many people in our country can sing Amazing Grace? But it doesn't mean that they know the God of grace. How many times in the right, in, in, in the right setting with the right orchestration and the right lighting and the right smoke machines and the right stuff can you get a lump in your throat or have a tear come to your eye when people sing Amazing Grace? but it doesn't necessarily mean that they've run to the Savior like the prodigal running to the Father and said, I come with nothing. Will you somehow still receive me by your grace? And I give you my life. It doesn't necessarily correlate. So there's, a, there's an ability, what James is saying is, you can mentally understand something, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're saved because the demons even understand. Man, look at uh, Mark 1, 24, you know, um, and there's a great passage there where, and you see this throughout the gospels in multiple places where you see how orthodox and solid theologically the demons are, which is a strange thing to say. But Mark 1, 24, their demon is talking to Jesus. He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. So the demon gets it right before the disciples get it right. Does that mean that we're gonna spend eternity with the demons yucking it up in the new heavens and the new earth? No, but their theology was right. Their theology was orthodox. Their, their facts about who Jesus were were spot on, right? Uh, and yet, what Je- does Jesus welcome them in? No, he actually sends them to a bunch of pigs and runs them off a cliff, right, and scatters them. And so there's, there's a disconnect here between the intellectual understanding of, of what the demons understood and what was going on in terms of their heart and their faith. And James uses that as an example for us to understand the problem that we might have in the same way that, um, that these followers might have. So as we jump into this, how does that stretch your thinking about faith? I think sometimes we think of faith and we think, well, do you understand the message? And, and I want you to know your faith is, is always, always includes understanding, but it's not just understanding that it always means you have to understand the, the, the information of the gospel because it's good news that comes to those who hear. But information by itself is not enough to be the, the kind of faith that saves, James says. You see, the, the demons didn't love God. They didn't value God's word. They didn't love God's people. They didn't love God's ways. They didn't have their heart changed and captured by the beauty of who God is and the beauty of the life he wanted for them. And so there's something missing. In verse 20, and we see this kind of argument that James is making continue. He says, do you wanna be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? There's kind of an interesting wordplay here when he talks about uh, this that shows up in Greek and I'm not trying to show off the Greek at all. I just think it's kind of funny to be honest, but it just doesn't translate to English. And he's kind of statement, he says, faith that does not work does not work. It's kind of the idea. He's kind of doing a wordplay on it. This is going, faith that doesn't work doesn't work. And, and he wants you to understand that unless it's somehow changing you, unless it's doing something in you, it's not really effective. It's an ineffective faith. And this, I think, highlights some of the tension that we are meant to experience in this passage. So you notice he says apart from or without. What he's saying is you cannot have one without the other. 
And there's a huge kind of interpretive key to, to uh, understanding this passage in this phrase. You notice in, in these verses, he talks over and over. He says, show me, or I will show you, or you will be shown, or you see, or you see. And then he uses this word justified. And what he's talking about is the visible world. So there's this understanding of, uh, of you're able to see someone's faith. Can you see my faith right now? You can't see my heart, right? You can't see this mysterious thing that's going on, the implanted word of truth that's in me that's doing work in my heart. You can't see the invisible reality of that faith right now. But what you can see is you can see the works that that produces, right? And so what James is saying is, show me your faith through the way that you live. Show me the faith that you have through the change in your life. Show me the faith that you have in the way you serve the poor and the way you care for, for your spouse, for the way in which you serve your spouse and rather than manipulate your spouse, or the way in which you love your kids when they're not gonna love you back in the way that you want them to that day, or the way in which you, you give generously to a mission that you may not see the fruit of. He's saying, take your faith and allow it to be visible. Show me that it's really effective and that it's producing something in you. But there's a, a word here that I think makes this even more difficult for us. It's the word justifies. And why that's difficult is if you read the rest of your Bible and you get in books like Galatians and Romans and places where uh, the apostle Paul writes, there's this idea of what justifies means and justification means. And, and part of what we see is James and Paul are using that idea differently. And so they're coming at this a little bit uh, from, from different angles. And James is using it more to say that it justifies, meaning that it proves or establishes or demonstrates that something is real, that whenever you, you show your works, it it validates the faith that you say is on the inside. And what he's saying in his approach is, look, I can't see what's going on in your heart, but I can see your life. And if what's going on in your heart is real, then it's going to be validated and justified in the way in which you live because it's gonna produce something good. So there's two important distinctions, I think, for us as we wrestle with this, uh, because th this is what, what a lot of scholars call a problem passage meaning uh, some people aren't sure what to do with it. In fact, uh, Luther wasn't sure what to do with that because he was fighting in a different world. And so he was grabbing hold of Romans and Galatians and all these things in the Reformation. And James actually caused him some problems as he was wrestling with that and understanding this concept of justified. But I think the things we need to understand is James' entire argument is talking about a visible demonstration of an invisible faith. He's saying that, that you need to understand that your faith that's invisible is to be made visible in the way in which you live. And so we see the fruit of that that's there in your life. And so his point's not about the difference between, uh, I'm sorry, um, James' point really is that the difference between faith that is simple assent to religious ideas and faith that is truly taken root and taken hold of your heart. So there's ineffective faith versus effective faith. That's the contrast James is really trying to make. Paul's making a different contrast. Paul is contrasting faith in religious works. And so they're, they're arguing from kind of opposite ends. In the middle of that, we understand as Paul is arguing about, or is talking about initial faith, that you put your faith in the gospel that's able to save you. And James is talking about faith that you already have that is going to produce something good in you. And so there's a, they're coming from different angles. And that I think is important for us to understand. And when you understand that, I think it helps us understand that Paul and James are not contradicting one another. In fact, you see in Paul's writings, look at Galatians 5, 6. Paul talks about faith working through love. So he's not saying that you just have faith alone and you don't have to live out your faith. 
He's saying that your faith takes hold first and then it works itself out in love. You see also in Philippians 2, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Meaning you start with faith, but then you gotta work it out. That faith produces something and sets you on a trajectory of life that is to move you in a new direction. So you see the, the big idea that Paul's getting at? Now he's gonna give us two examples, two biblical examples that he wants to, us to, to grab hold of to kind of demonstrate his point. And these, this for me is a beautiful and remarkable section. I love what it is he says here. He's gonna talk about two different people. Talks about, Ahab, uh, talks about Abraham and he talks about Rahab. Now, Abraham and Rahab could not possibly be more different in that world. Abraham was a man, Rahab's a woman. Abraham was a Jew, Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham was a patriarch, Rahab was a prostitute. And so you've got these two polar opposite people, this kind of religious hero, this patriarch of the faith that was in the kind of the ruling class of that world and very much lifted up as this kind of model person. And then you had this harlot, this woman, this prostitute who was very much on the outside in, in every circle in which she was. And James takes both of them and says, both of these are examples of what real faith looks like. So let's look at what it is he says. First, let's take Abraham. When you think about Abraham, uh, you're thinking about the, the guy who in the Old Testament, he's, not, he's unable to have children and God comes to him and says, I'm gonna bless the entire world through your offspring. And Abraham, Abraham says, well, um, got a problem. I'm really old and I got no kids. And so we're gonna have to do something about that. And so God promises and says, just trust me, I'm going to make it happen. And we see in this famous verse that's quoted here, Abraham believed God and it was credited or counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the promise that God had given him. And God said, I now look upon you. It means you're a person of faith. He credited him to his righteousness. Paul is gonna quote the same verse elsewhere as well. Abraham completely trusted God's promise that he would have a descendant. And you know, Abraham didn't trust perfectly. His faith wasn't perfect. In fact, one of the things we see in Abraham's life was that there were times where he so doubted the promise that he tried to work out a solution to that problem in other ways than the ways God, in which God prescribed. And so you see, Abraham, though he struggled, still trusted the Lord in terms of his seeking to, to believe and to live out the thing that God had told him to do. Now, later, Abraham actually has a, has a child through his wife, Sarah. Has a child named Isaac. They name him Laughter because they thought it was so hilarious that in their old age, God had answered the problem in a natural way, uh, which was really supernatural. But uh, as they get into this, um, what we see is 30 years later, Abraham, God tells Abraham, to take his son and to offer him up on an altar. And he raises a knife above him and is gonna offer back to God the son that God had miraculously provided to him. And so you see this struggle that's there. And that's the situation here that James points out. And he says that Abraham believed God has credited his righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. So Abraham, our father, was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. So how was it Abraham was justified by his works? See, he had faith 30 years before. 30 years later, he goes and takes Isaac. And what, what, uh, what James is saying is that when he acted in accordance with, in obedience to God to put Isaac upon the altar, he was living out his faith. That when he trusted him 30 years before to provide him with a son, 
Whenever he went to the altar and put Isaac upon it, he was living out his faith saying, I know that the God who gave me a son can resurrect this one or can, can somehow work out his promise and I can trust him no matter what. Because God was faithful then and God will be faithful now. He was justified, meaning he demonstrated, he, his faith became visible in his putting Isaac upon the altar. And so you're able to see his faith. 30 years, and it's amazing to think about what it would take to, to live out that journey to trust the promise of God that you never thought would be fulfilled and then it's fulfilled and God asks you to hand it back over and to have to walk in faith in that and say, okay, God, what you gave to me, I will give freely back to you and to simply trust. And we see Abraham's faith in his total confidence in God and his ability to do that. See, when you understand what real faith looks like, when you understand authentic faith, once you've invited faith in it, it takes over. And it does work in your heart and it does work in your life and it produces something good in you. It's not just a mental reorientation. It's not just kind of a, a mental like, oh, I've got a different worldview or understanding of the way the world works. It's a giving of my life to something that I can trust. And you become a conduit through whom the life of God flows in service to others. That's what you see worked out here in the life of Abraham. Show me your faith. James says, Isaac said, I put my son on, I mean, Abraham says, I put my son Isaac on the altar. I showed you the confidence that I had. In some ways it was prophetic, right? So Genesis 15, God tells him he's going to have this son. Genesis 22, he puts him on the altar. And it says, I mean, what, what James says here is, it was his putting him on the altar that actually fulfilled the promise of Genesis 15, that Abraham would be a person of faith. So Abraham is called a man of faith in Genesis 15. He demonstrated visibly his faith in Genesis 22, 30 years later, by living it out and trusting the Lord. So that's the picture you get of Abraham. What about Rahab? And Rahab's story is totally different. It takes place in the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, you've got this narrative where uh, God's people have been sent into the promised land and they're gonna go in there. And you may remember the story, if you have read your Old Testament, they march around the city and the walls are gonna cave in. And so they send spies in beforehand and they they interact with Rahab. And and what you see is that that she, uh, that, that as she interacts with them, she receives the message and she receives the messengers that God has sent. In fact, Joshua 2.11 says, she tells them that whenever they come and they begin to dialogue with her, she expresses her faith and says, well, I knew that there, was great, uh, that there was a great God who was outside of the city walls for the Lord, your God, he is a God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And so she's actually proclaiming truth. And so she had received and heard the reports. And so what we understand is that when God had delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, Kind of the rumor mill went through and this, this record of, of deliverance of this, you know, this, this slave people that simply got up and, and fronted the Pharaoh and then marched out of the city and all the Egyptians came and just handed over all their wealth to Israel and they took whatever they wanted and they walked out. Now, I may, if I was Rahab, I may have been a little bit concerned because they, God couldn't give them a GPS apparently because they wandered for 40 years, but eventually they got to the promised land and once they got there, now they're outside and this rumor this, uh, of this army and this God that, of the people of Israel has gotten to her and she believed it to be true. She says, I know who you are. I've heard the reports of your God and she received that message, but she also received the messengers. And you see here in the passage, James says that she helped them get out by another way. So she allowed them to escape. Where did Rahab live? Anyone remember? She lived in the wall. The city of Jericho, she lived on the outside, right in the wall. 
How was it that God was going to destroy Jericho and deliver it over to his people? They were going to march around and the walls were going to cave in. See, she turned her back on Jericho and she turned her face to God by faith. And she demonstrated it by looking out for these spies and by delivering them. This is what we see. You know, in the Hebrews 11, we see what's called the hall of faith. And we see this kind of demonstration of so many people of the Old Testament. It just says, by faith, this one did this. By faith, this one did this. By faith, this one did this. It's interesting. James is talking about Abraham's works of offering a son and Rahab's works of delivering the messengers. But you look in Hebrews in the hall of faith in eleven seventeen, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had received. And he who received the promises was in, was in the act of offering up his only son. So it was by faith, that he worked. You see the same thing with Rahab. She shows up also in that chapter in Hebrews eleven thirty one. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She welcomed the message of God. She welcomed the messengers. And in that, she was spared. That's faith. Now, verse 26, James is gonna sum it up. And he's just gonna give us a really simple illustration. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And it's really a pretty simple idea that just, man, there's some things that should go together and when they don't go together, bad things happen. And that's really what, he's, what he wants us to understand. A body, when the spirit departs, doesn't work anymore, right? Like you get how that works? And body and spirit separated, neither work very well, just it, things, things seem to stop. Faith and works are the same way. That if you have faith apart from works, then it's useless, it's dead, it doesn't really produce anything. That's what James wants us to understand. So do you understand what the big idea here is? I mean, James is coming at us hard. He's given us a ton of deep theology. He's given us a ton of rich stuff. And he wants us to understand, I think, that, that your faith is supposed to change your life. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing to me. I think whenever I think about kind of what we do with this, and so many of us, I think, know that there's something wrong with the church, but we don't know what to do with it. I think James is trying to help us know what to do about those tensions. That we're meant, we're meant to live it out. The only path to spiritual maturity is trust and obey. The only path to spiritual maturity is faith that works itself out in love. That's, that's the call of the scriptures. That's what we're intended to do is to believe the truth from God's word and then put it in action. And whenever we don't, whenever we, we drift back, and man, it's easy to do to take it just as kind of religious platitudes and make it just a cultural thing, but it's not really impacting our life. It's not really producing anything in us. It's not really making us love people any differently. Then I think what James is saying is, man, don't waste your time. Like that's not gonna do you any good. It's not gonna do good for the hungry person in the street. It's not gonna do any good for your marriage. It's not gonna do any good for your parenting. It's not gonna do any good for your ability to engage the lost of this city. But if your faith is just a mental thing, that you can regurgitate some ideas, but it hadn't penetrated and it hasn't produced, then it's dead, it's useless, it's empty, he says. Here's what I realize is that I think this ought to challenge a whole bunch of us. That it's easy for us to, to live in a world where we're sort of tipping our hat to what the Bible says about us and about our world, but not to truly allow it to impact us, not to truly allow it to overwhelm us, I think we think sometimes salvation is like getting into a gated community. Like you wander up and you hit like, you know, pound one, two, three, four, the gate opens and you enter in and you're good. And that's kind of what salvation is. But 
biblically, you don't see that anywhere. You don't just kind of wander up to the gates of heaven and say, Jesus died for me. And now that's definitely true, but it's not just the facts. The demons know the facts. The demons can call Jesus the Holy One of God. In fact, it says they even react to it. So they're not even just numb to it. It says that when they say it, it says they, they believe and they shudder. I mean, there's a fear. There's a, you know, shudder's kind of that involuntary thing that, you, that hits you sometimes. And it says the demons feel that. They react. They respond to the truth of who God is in some way. Remember, what about us? Have we responded? Have we reacted? Have we... Have we received and, and, and shifted the course of our lives based on the truth of what the scriptures teach? And the Bible doesn't describe faith as kind of a pass to get in. It's more like a parachute and jumping. You know, it's easy to say I believe in parachutes when you're standing on the ground on the tarmac. It's a whole nother thing to say I believe in parachutes when you're jumping out of a perfectly good plane, free falling thousands of feet before you pull the cord, right? And faith, Faith involves jumping. Faith involves giving yourself to something. But here's here's what's interesting to me as I thought about this passage this week. I think sometimes we look at this and we get fearful. We get afraid and you're like, what if I'm that guy? And for some of you, that may be the case. Some of you, this may challenge you. And you may say, you know, man, I've played games with my faith my whole life. I know how to say the right things. I can give the right answers. I can do the right things. When mom and dad pushed on me when I was a kid, I found out I learned how to regurgitate the right stuff. But maybe you never really made it your own. And maybe today, James is pushing on you and saying, and is your faith more like a demonic faith? A faith that goes, man, I can give you some information, but it hadn't really, hadn't really done any work or changed you. Because if that's the case, man, I've got good news for you. you. You can be like Abraham or Rahab. You can come in. You know, I love in this passage, what does it say about Abraham? He was called what? A friend of God. That he believed God and he acted on his faith and God said, you're my friend. Do you know that same invitations opened to us? That God wants to be a friend to any of us who would believe and act on our faith as well. That if we just trust the good news of Jesus and give our lives to it, make him not just a passcode into something, but if we make him savior, we make him Lord, if we make him our rescuer, we make him our king, and we understand who it really is that he came to be and what he really wants to do. Jesus didn't come to make us smile, nod, and say nice things to one another. Jesus came to revolutionize the world and to turn our lives upside down. Jesus didn't come. He didn't die on a cross so that we could offer nice religious platitudes and pat each other on the shoulder each Sunday. Jesus died because he wants to be your friend. He wants a relationship with you. And you know, the good news for me in this passage is is that I think there's another message in this passage that says faith actually works. Friends, you can do this. You You can change. You can live differently. You can, like Abraham, offer up the most important things and the most important moments of your life to God and trust him with him. You, you can, like Rahab, in moments of crisis, you can trust the message and trust the messengers of God and you can act accordingly in a way that serves God's kingdom and his mission and furthers it in, a, in, a, in an incredible way that, that's memorialized for all time in her case. But God will actually change your life. How do I know this? Well, because one, I've experienced it. Like my faith is, it's, I'm not who I was. 
But you also know how, and so like James says, show me, show me your faith. You know, when, when we start a church, everyone comes in and I hear the stories of your faith. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. I love that. I love that you believe. We come in and we sing the songs and we sing songs about our faith, right? You know how I know that this is true? Because I know you guys. I know this is true because I know Cheryl Lang. And I know the deep love for God that she has in her heart. That in a life where she didn't get everything she wanted, I mean, God has impacted her heart in a way that bubbles up in, out of her in ways that you can't deny when you see it. You know how I know this works? It's because I see, I see the Russells and the way that they love kids in this church. And I see their heart to see children come to Christ. How the way it works, I love that, I see how my dad stays young at heart by engaging in mission trips and giving away his retirement. And in, in my inheritance to go love people across the country. And I'm glad for him to do it. That's another way I know it's real. You know, I also know it's real. I see Jeff Hayden coming in with a smile, even in weeks when maybe we don't have all the volunteers we need. And I see him loving and serving and doing. And so I, I know that there's faith that's there, but I see the faith shown off in the things that we do and the way that we live. And I, I see I know this is true because I remember when Kami Priest came into church the first time in our first interactions and kind of what was going on in her life. And I've seen over the last course of the last few years and her love for being with the people of God and her love for serving the people of God. And I know that this is true because I see the joy in Josh Wright when he sings from the back and we can all hear him over the microphones, Right? <laughs> Like, I know these things are true because I see it in you. And that's what James is saying. I think he wants us to know, friends, you can do this by faith. Your faith can make things different. Your faith can change you. Your faith, your faith by God's grace, can impact others. And so as we, as we kind of wrap this, this up, I just want you to, would you just, would you just say this with me? Just turn to your neighbor and just say, by faith, you can do this. Friends, your faith, your faith can change things. And, and by faith, I assure you, the message of James is you can do this. It can make a difference. Let me pray for us. Father, we do come and ask that you would convince us that you can change things if, if we allow our faith to be real, alive, active, awake to the friendship that we have in you. Father, do you convince us, as it says in James, that you give generously to all without, without begrudging and that every good and perfect gift is yours and that you bestow them upon us. And Father, by your grace and by your goodness, by your friendship, would you allow us to live in a way that honors and glorifies you? Father, we pray it through Jesus. Amen.